I'm interested in the urban alliances that are going to allow citizens to have a better city. I see them as progressive because if citizens are going to have more rights and more resources supporting their lives, that is a progressive outcome. And with cities now containing half the world's population and by 2030 containing 70% of the world's population, it's like how goes the city is how goes the world's people and it matters. You're listening to City Road. I'm Sophie Weber. And I'm Isabel Napier from the Sydney Policy Lab. City Road and the Sydney Policy Lab are on a mission to find the spaces and places where democracy happens. Today, we're continuing our discussion of the changing forms and practices of democracy in cities around the world with Dr. Amanda Tattersall, urban observer and activist. Amanda is the host of the Changemakers podcast and is currently a postdoctoral research fellow in the School of Geosciences at the University of Sydney. If you missed episode one with Amanda's collaborator, Kurt Iverson, head to cityroadpod.org to catch up. Amanda leads training at the Sydney Policy Lab. Together with Kurt and the Henry Halloran Trust, Amanda also leads research for the lab. Amanda has travelled far and wide to see what urban alliances look like around the world, to see how people in different cities and cultures build power together, and to share lessons and success across issues like housing, labour, land and education. An urban alliance is where a range of citizens often through organisations or loose networks, come together to try and make their city a better place to live. And yet the form in which they come together and the kind of issues they work on can vary. And there's lo- there is lots of variation across the world, but that's the sort of baseline. Can you give some examples? Barcelona, Sydney, Cape Town? So many. So Barcelona, of course, which is famous now for Articolau's work in politics, but she came out of a social movement around housing called La Pa, which has been well understood. In Sydney, the infamous and famous Sydney Alliance, which I founded uh, about 10 years ago, is an example here. There's similar ones in in Brisbane. And those organisations are actually part of a global network called the Industrial Areas Foundation, which has uh, approximately 80 urban alliances around the world, predominantly in the global north. The Sydney Alliance is Australia's most developed example of this kind of community organising. Part of our little project that I'm sure we're going to talk about has been mapping these urban alliances in different places. And I've just come back from Cape Town, where I was studying an urban alliance there that's narrower than some of the ones I've already talked about, focused on this issue of, of housing. And you can imagine housing in a place like Cape Town, which is still really, to be honest, struggling to desegregate its city is a very interesting um, thing to study and to work with. The research project also catalogues the different types of urban alliances. Amanda calls these different types global models, and he's interested in the different networks that propagate these models. So the first one was obviously the Industrial Areas Foundation. And the Industrial Areas Foundation was set up in the 1930s by a guy called Saul Alinsky, who is famous for writing, somewhat famous in the nerd world of social movements, um, for writing the book uh, Rules for Radicals. And he coined this approach to organising that that sort of trained and mentored some of 
America's most successful organizers, like Cesar Chavez is from that movement, for instance. Obama, you know, is from that movement. And it then, after his death, sort of congealed and they they have a, a, a methodology of, of training, like a pedagogy of what community organizing is and how to teach people. And as I said, they're in all these different countries. And, and I came across them when I was over there doing my PhD and went, oh my gosh, this stuff is amazing. I think we should set it up in Australia. The Industrial Areas Foundation, or the IAF, is the largest and longest standing network of faith and community-based organisations in the United States. In 1940, it emerged from the first community organisation in the nation, called the Back of the Yards Neighbourhood Council. At the time, and still today, it was groundbreaking. It gave ordinary families in Chicago a voice in the decisions impacting their lives for the very first time. As Amanda mentioned, Barack Obama's three-year stretch as a grassroots organizer has figured prominently in his narrative of his own life. Campaigning in Iowa, Obama called it the best education I ever had, better than anything I got at Harvard Law School. So we knew that network and were interested in how it worked. And one of the things that is interesting about the Industrial Areas Foundation is how similar stuff is between cities. So you can go to London and sitting on the six-day training with the with Citizens UK and it's basically the same content that I used to teach at the Sydney Alliance. Yet at the same time, and often the IAF people would say, oh, we're the same everywhere. And you'd be going, yeah, maybe on some things, but actually it is really different. Like the way in which we set up the Sydney Alliance, we had lots of unions and not-for-profit organisations involved. That wasn't the case overseas. We raised a lot of hard money from the organisations who participated. That wasn't the case overseas. So Kurt and I were initially interested in what's similar and different place to place and what makes that difference. But it's not only the IAF. We started to come across other networks. So the next network we came across was uh, something was happening in Greenpeace. So Greenpeace had set up an urban revolution movement because they're really good at copywriting. And um, there was some pressure inside of Greenpeace internationally from the Global South organisations that there wasn't enough activity in the mega cities like Bangalore and Mexico City, for instance. So they wanted to have a movement that could be doing stuff in those cities. And so they, they, they identified eight cities. And I went out to a, a meeting of those leaders, of those, well, actually those staff people for, for a few days, helping them like plan their model. And that was a different model. They were going to focus predominantly on transport related issues and air pollution, but they were going to be experimental in terms of their people power strategies. So it was a, it was a bit different. Then we came across a third model, which was a very loose model run or coordinated by the Asian Coalition for Housing Rights. So an explicitly focused Global South coalition strategy. And they are working in 70 cities throughout Asia. And their approach is to transition slums to homes and sort of do the building around sanitation and homes um, and do that led by the communities because that slum transition happens all the time, but it's just slum destruction. This was a different approach. This was a sort of the community is going to lead their own transition. And so they were doing coalition practice in in, uh, in the South. It was loose. There wasn't really a pedagogy. They were like the absolute opposite to the Industrial Areas Foundation. But, you know, they had they were contagion. They were as big as the Industrial Areas Foundation, but throughout Asia. 
And then there was the explosion that happened out of Barcelona last June, which was the Fearless Cities Convergence, where people from around the world, an interesting mix, a lot of political party people as radical political party people and some mainstream political party people, as well as activists, went to Barcelona in June last year for this Fearless Cities conference. And that movement was, it was organised by Barcelona on Camus, which is the Articolau political party. And they came together to try and talk about and understand and define the concept of municipalism. The idea that the city political space is where activism should occur. And they were very much informed. There was a lot of being informed from some of the radicalism of Spanish politics, wanting to uh, transform what democracy looks like. So not being uh, content with the idea that democracy should be a vote, but democracy needs to be far more engaged and participatory. And the, even the network itself is incredibly loose. So it's very horizontal, you know, it's the new favourite thing in social mo- social movement politics. At the moment. It's got to be horizontal and, and loose and, and people can step in and identify. Take Cape Town, for example, where a new movement to reclaim land, housing and place in the city has been incredibly successful. Since the, um, the rise of democracy and the fall of a formal apartheid in Cape Town, there's been lots of activity in townships, which are all on the periphery of the town in informal settlements, to try and make them less just abjectly awful, right? And um, that organising and activity has been on the periphery of town and it's been in all the cities, predominantly Durban, Johannesburg and Cape Town. But what has been found is no matter how much uh, shouting and organising that can be done in those areas, the predominantly white governments have been ignoring those pleas. And often the only time that they get any attention at all is when they come to the inner city. So once um, this group called the Social Justice Coalition staged a protest around uh, sanitation and toilets, because in many of these places there aren't toilets, like that's what we're working with here, and they brought in 2,000 people to queue up for a toilet in the beachside area in Seapoint um, in Cape Town. So there was a growing recognition that place really mattered to how you exercise power in these cities, and especially because place um, and displacement had been so important under apartheid, sort of reclaiming place was a really important part of how power could be shifted in Cape Town. And so what you have now in Cape Town is about uh, 400 people, four to 500 people in emergency accommodation who've all been evicted, who've got emergency accommodation created by a social movement. It's quite radical. Why do you think they were able to succeed with that radical outcome? I think that they were underestimated. I think that, and I think that, that that's often a helpful thing in, in social movements when uh, the political forces don't take you seriously. I don't think that they were taken seriously. I think that they were, they had some very sophisticated um, internal leadership structures, um, sort of, they had a, a somewhat horizontal leadership structure, but with formal leadership responsibility, which in the social movement literature, there's a debate between those two things, but actually they combine them both to be quite effective. I think the way in which they organise internally was powerful. I think that the fact that the state decided not to crush them was a hugely significant factor, obviously. Like if they'd sent the police in really early, it would have, it would have fallen over at the start. But now that they've been there so long and their homes, like you go in, which I did, people have painted their rooms. It's... It, they've decorated it, their homes. It, 
If that was to be destroyed, it would be a far more radical proposition than it would have been early, early on when it was just a few nascent activists claiming the space. You're listening to 2SER 107.3 in Sydney. I'm Isabel Napier from the Sydney Policy Lab, and you've tuned in to this City Road episode on Urban Alliances. In the next part of the discussion, Amanda talks about the city as a democratic space where everyone comes face to face. For Amanda, there's something about the conviviality and in-your-faceness of cities that make them such important sites for organising. For democracy, for instance, it's where everyone comes face to face. And I actually think that's probably its most tremendous contribution as a site of political action. Because democracy, no matter how much we love the internet, and I love the internet, actually building political power and civic understanding requires face-to-face interaction. It requires face-to-face to be able to build relationships of power and trust. It also requires face-to-face to be able to have in-depth senses of training and leadership development, but also requires face-to-face to build relationships across diversity. You know, like trust between Muslim, the Muslim community in Sydney and key unions in Sydney can't be done on the internet. You know, the internet blows people apart. You have to do it face-to-face. So then it becomes this question, where in the world can we get enough people face-to-face? And cities are diverse, you know, they're by their, especially ones of significant size. They're incredibly diverse, but they're siloed and sort of rigid and separated. And so the organising challenge is both one that allows for people to get to know each other and connections to be made, but it's also reweaving the very fabric on which the city is organised. I mean, there's other, you know, their financial capital, their centres of money and power, their centres, they've got often the centre of political decision-making. Most most cities, not so much in places like Sydney, but most cities around the world have their own governance structure, which allows an alliance to meet that governance structure, like a, a mayor head-on to, to exercise power. There's lots of, and also they're interconnected. So they're globally, locally relational, you know, globalization doesn't exist, you know, somewhere above the earth. (laughs) It exists in the city and the city is, allows us to push back on its pressures if we map that power in the right place at the right time. There is, of course, something difficult about organising within cities, particularly when their inhabitants are so diverse, with such different identities, positions in the city and sets of political concerns. I mean, I would say that all those things like identity, organisation, place, they're all generative, right? You're always becoming those things. And I think that any alliance tries to create an openness around any of those categories firstly. And I think that that's important and having the skills to create not rigid identities and not rigid senses of organisation or not rigid senses of place is incredibly important. But, you know, if you were to compare this Cape Town organisation with my experience with the Sydney Alliance, I reckon you can see some interesting differences. The Cape Town Alliance had a narrower, what I would call a common concern, narrower issue framework. It wasn't an issue alliance. Like when I I was wondering about that before I went, is this just an issue-based alliance? And the people in South Africa, the leaders in South Africa, were very adamant to say, no, no, no. If you're talking about land in South Africa, you're talking about 
the whole system of power. This is not, you know, you, you can't narrow it to an issue. This is about everything in terms of how people live, where they travel to, where they get jobs, how they work. It's about sanitation. It's about access to education. Like land and where you live is, is it's, the, it's the mother load issue. That's why they're working on it. So it's definitely a whole of city claim. I mean, the thing is called reclaim the city, but it is narrower. It is saying of, of all those complex issues, we're going to work on this domino issue of housing. We've decided that we've made a judgment that that's the most important element that unplugs all of these other problems. Now, from my experience with the Sydney Alliance, <laughs> I, I wish we'd had that clarity because we worked on issues, you know, when I was there, we worked on a diverse array of issues from refugees to transport to housing to jobs. Amongst others, we worked on some issues locally, some issues citywide, and it was great. You know, we won some stuff, but we didn't have that ease of which you could hold people together through a single focus. And it made it hard at times to generate the power of the alliance towards a big city issue. And also it wasn't very easy to do that because we had organized, you know, we couldn't just say, okay, housing is it, everyone go on housing because some of the organizations would have left. So actually creating a frame for your demands is a, is probably one of the trickiest things that these alliances do and what makes it successful and how do they hold that grouping together is, is a critical uh, determinant of success. Despite these challenges though, Amanda's research and activism has uncovered a plethora of wins. Wins that have granted citizens better social policy outcomes and wins that have come about because citizens are allowed or seek greater participation in civil society organisations. Oh, wow. So, I mean, there's lots. You know, if it's... There's, there's been defensive strategy and offensive strategy. So there's defensive strategy like in Spain, like in Barcelona, where, you know, they had to respond to half a million evictions and they've been able to build a movement that is creating affordable housing standards now and um, is building affordable housing in a place that has never done that before. So there's that kind of stuff. But then there's offensive wins. For instance, like in New York, in East Brooklyn, where thousands and thousands of affordable houses were built not off the back of an uh, a momentary crisis like a financial crash, but off the back of literally people organising and going, this community needs to be rebuilt. We're going to rebuild, we're going to build these affordable homes. And you go there now, what was a bombed out community, which was a, bit, a little bit like um, parts of Baltimore, is now middle class. And it's because those those people acted over the best part of 20 years to rebuild their community using affordable housing strategies. Just a quick note about this collaboration with the Sydney Policy Lab. Up next, the Lab and City Road will continue on our mission to find the places and spaces where democracy happens. Together with Harvard Professor of Education, Mira Levinson, we're zooming in on our schools. For Mira, classrooms around the world are key sites where we safeguard and shape democracy for generations to come. If you like the show, you can find us at cityroadpod.org.